you a couple of stories, is that okay? Um, so part of my role, um, I, the job that I'm paid for, is, uh, is the Elam International Missions Director. So I get to travel and see what God is doing across um, various parts of the world. For those of you who are maybe new to, to Elam, we have, we have work in 56 nations. We have 73 missionaries, and so we're, we're involved in a few. But do you know there's 141 nations that we currently don't have any work in? I'll say that not as a as like a pioneer, as a uh, an, an empire building kind of thing and going planting our flag, but we want to join in with what God is doing across the earth, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's not just about what's going on here; it's it's actually what God is doing across the globe. And so, um, John mentioned that we were in Israel this last week. Um, we met some amazing people doing some incredible things, doing some reconciliation work between Jews and Gentiles meeting lots of Messianic believers who are passionate about the king and his kingdom, who are seeing people come to faith in Christ, they're establishing and planting churches. We actually met one guy who's involved in an organization called Living Israel. And um, in 12 years, they've seen 9,000 addicts come through their what they call their buffer zone. Right? So it's this point where they get them off the street, and they start to talk about the gospel, they try and clean them up, and then they go. They've seen 2,000 of those, 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 those uh, addicts and, uh, of various kinds uh, go into their Bible training school. And so they do three, three months of discipleship training, encountering Jesus, being transformed by Jesus, and sent out um, to be a part of community and be involved in church. And now they've this is the really exciting part. So the 100, well, in fact, that's all exciting, actually. But 100, uh, 750 people who have gone through that Bible uh, training discipleship school have gone on to um, form church communities, 33 of them in the last 12 years. And they're seeing uh, Russian-speaking Jews who are returning uh, to Israel, coming to faith in Christ because people are going, hang on, Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that you've been looking for. He is the one whom your hope is found in. And the same people's lives transformed and changed. 33 communities established. Ah! You know, you'd think, this, this man, he's incredible. He didn't speak a word of English. Um, but he, an apostolic call upon his life. Who is uh, Pastor Michael? And um, I can't remember he, the guy. This the guy in the left's name. He was the interpreter, which is really bad. Um, but he, just what they're doing in terms of ministry in Israel is incredible. Do you know? Um, can I can I say this publicly? Um, one of the things that excites me the most about this trip was not going to the sites. Honestly, I, I mean it was it was great, but it's all a bit of guesswork actually. Oh, Jesus might have been here. Oh, Peter might have been here. And this is my work. Oh, great. I love all of that because it sets some context. It was amazing to be in Jerusalem. It was amazing to be on Sea Galilee. But what was really exciting was just seeing what God is doing through people who are passionate about his kingdom and the nation of Israel, which is so key to God's purposes and plans, being captivated by Jesus and saying, hang on, don't forget us from Israel to the nations and the nations to Israel. This movement of God's people backward and forward, Jew and Gentile, it's incredible. And so if we can get a passion and a, and a desire and a heart for not just what happens in our congregations, but that actually God has multiplication in his heart. Right? If you trace the story right from the beginning, it was always about multiplication. 
Genesis chapter 1. Go forth and multiply. So multiplication is always God's thing. And so, um, uh, let me just tell you about Barb before I talk about a little bit more about that. But Barb is one of our missionaries in Nepal. Uh, Twelve years ago, I sat in a room with a group of other eight, eight other people sat around dreaming of what it could look like for church planting to happen in that nation. Not just in Nepal, actually, but in the Himalayan region. And if you know anything about that region, it's very challenging. Highly Buddhist, highly, uh, there's some Hindu, and it, it's, it's just really, really hard, really dark. But we had this dream, and Bob particularly had this dream, sensing a call to go back to his, his people, a Nepali national, to reach his people in the villages of Nepal with the good news. Now, um, 12 years ago, there weren't that many churches actually in Nepal. I think there were somewhere between 50 to 100 churches in, in Nepal. Bob... Um, He's a tenacious little character, passionate about the kingdom, passionate about Jesus, passionate about his people. And so he had this dream, one, train, uh, one village, one train leader, one church in, 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 in well, one, one train leader, one church in every village in Nepal. That was the, that was the, low, that was the mandate, that was the, the vision statement. Now, um, in 12 years, would you like to have us a guess at how many churches have been planted? Not quite, but I love your I love your faith, Eddie. Not quite two thousand. So that they can record and that they know of, there are two hundred churches in twelve years. He actually estimates it's over four hundred churches, because the thing with multiplication is you can't actually control it. See, uh, so what we like in the West is we like control. So we can measure it, we can structure it, we can order it because we love order. So like when, when God shows up, and God is a God of order, yes, but actually he messes with us. Because his ways are not our ways. And his, his mode of operation is not our mode of operation. And actually we can't control the work of the Spirit. So we've got to go, actually, God, we're going we're gonna to listen and tune our ears to step into what you're doing. Because otherwise, we're, we're, we're in control. And we're not actually following Jesus. We're, we're making a pattern and a model after our own mind and heart. And, and, and actually, we, we've just got to walk in step with, with the Spirit. Now, I say that because, uh, um, because that's the most important thing. But actually, it's not in isolation. Because we all know that some people have said, I'm here in the Holy Spirit. And they do some really mental stuff. True. Like, and you just go, I'm not seeing what you're saying the Spirit's asking you to do in line with what is revealed in the Scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit will never contradict what's in the Scriptures. So we always align what somebody is saying uh, through this Holy Spirit in line with the Scriptures. And if you don't see it matched up with the character and nature of God and His patterns and principles, then we've got to go, I'm not really sure. That's why community is so important. Actually, that's why we need one another. I think that's why God set his work and his mission in the context of family. Because I know that my wife, who is at the back there, if I'm going to do something stupid and she spots it, she's going to call it out. She does quite regularly. <laughs> if, if my kids are misbehaving and they're not, not following and the family plan, the family pattern, I'm going I'm to call it out. 
Because actually what they do is a representation of me. And what I do is a representation of them. And if I step out of line or do something stupid, it won't will damage them or affect them. It'll have an impact upon the witness of my family name. So I'm not only thinking of my kids and my family, I'm thinking of my, my parents. Because this is generational. And often we think, we, we, we think so, um, uh, so narrowly about just what affects me and mine. And actually we've got to look both ways. And so you know we're talking about the Old, so in the Old Testament and Genesis, it talks about the um, multiplication. What, hap- what began to happen is that um, the, the people of God multiplied in, in incredible ways and actually in, in face of persecution. Under some of the most challenging of circumstances, God's people just began to multiply. In the Old Testament pattern was that everybody would come to the temple. So this week we've just been into this place where people would have come over the hills and uh, over the Mount of Olives and come up to the temple. It's incredible. If you ever get to go, go. It's amazing. But it was so centrally focused. It was coming into the center. Everybody drawn to Jerusalem, the, the city of God, the dwelling place of God. It's really interesting what happens in Acts chapter 2. Because from this center point, this place where it's just been the focus of, of, of religious worship and the worship of God, it begins to change. God does something different. Because it's not just about now coming into the center. As, as of that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, all the all, uh, people gathered in Jerusalem. And what begins to happen following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is they begin to scatter. Jews from, uh, Jewish speakers from every nation, tongue and tribe, empowered by the Spirit. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So is it any surprise that we have, we, there are Jews in pretty much every nation? God's people scattered throughout the land. And I think God's doing something incredible amongst his people. I think he's beginning to wake people up. And as people come back and accept Jesus, what's happening is they're understanding their story with fresh eyes. So you and I, unless we're Jewish, we're never going to be Jewish. We're Gentiles. So we don't follow the same pattern, but we're grafted into the story. This is, for me, this is incredible because we get to play our part in the unfolding of God's story and his purposes for his people, of which we are now a part. Once you are far off, now you are part of this holy nation, royal priesthood, called out of darkness to proclaim the majesty of, and, and excellencies of his majesty. So when, when in Acts chapter 2... Peter preaches this message. And I, I, I mean, I, I've often thought that this would be an incredible thing, that you preach the gospel and 3,000 people say, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> so if you could just humor me a little bit this morning, that would be really appreciative. But you, I don't know whether you've just begun to think about what, what was all that about? Like 3,000 people who'd suddenly had their eyes opened that this Jesus whom you crucified was he died for your sin so that you might be saved and reconciled to him and understand your story ah so what's going to happen with these 3,000 people well, it's a good job that Jesus spent three years investing his life into, into 12, well, 11 people at that point because Judas had done, done one. 
But then they call Matthias, the 12 is reestablished. People who'd been with Jesus, knew Jesus. So when the disciples and the apostles then began to say, oh, wow, we've got, we, we've got a little bit of a logistics problem going on here. What began to happen, I think, is really important for the development and the, and the uh, movement of the church. Because if you think about this, this idea of multiplication, how is it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen through families multiplying. And where do families dwell? Homes. We don't dwell in church buildings. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I, love, I love our gathered times. Actually, it's really important, really significant, really precious. And I think, you know, um, can I just say, I think as a church, we're stepping into some stuff that we've, we've maybe, those who've gone before us have prayed for. <laughs> I think we're stepping into some things. I don't think we need to try too hard. I just think we need to walk with him. Don't think it's about putting any pressure on. I just think it's, Lord, what are you doing? Let me get involved in this because it's good. I think there's something happening in our worship. I've, I've been a part of the church for a few years, uh, well, about a year now, just over, and I think there's something happening in worship. I think there's something happens when God's people begin to worship him and adore him. I think it begins to shift some stuff in our hearts that helps us to see this bigger picture and it draws us into his purposes. And so I want to encourage us as a church, let's, let's keep walking in step with him. Let's not hold back. Let's not be afraid. Fear's a, fear's a big killer, you know. And the, so the, the church here in Acts chapter 2, as they'd responded to Jesus... They began to form in such a way that made it possible for people to be discipled in the ways of Jesus. To not only be discipled in the ways of Jesus, but to affect society. Now, the danger we can have with, with Acts chapter 2 is we can re- look back with rose-tinted glasses and think, oh, wasn't that wonderful? Everybody lived together and, uh, you know, this sense of community. Everybody shared their goods and their belongings. It's lovely. And some of you are thinking, me, and that sounds like hell. <laughs> But we can look at it and we think, oh, this was, this was, um, this was a, a, an important and significant time in the church. And I'm not saying we need to go back to Acts because we actually we have, to, we have to incarnate the body of Christ in our day. But we need to look at the principles contained in the scriptures to help us form what that looks like. Otherwise, we create this thing in our image and our structures and our patterns and our processes that align with how we think we should do it. And it can actually become restrictive. And so I think what we have in Acts chapter 2 are some principles of what it looks like to be God's people on mission. Because this is always about mission. Always. So one of the most standout things for, for my time this week was the way that the Messianic believers and Arab believers that we, we met are saying this is all about mission, Ian. All about mission. It, God's blessing to his people and God's purposes for his people was always about mission that the world may know. That the entire world may know your way. If you, if you get a chance this afternoon, read Psalm 67 and just and this, get this picture of God's purposes was that his ways might be known on the earth. So what did they do? They gathered in families, community, homes. So should we read some scripture? So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. 
They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds, uh, and the proceeds to all as any had need. Interesting that though, isn't it? It wasn't just like randomly give it away. It was like, actually, where's the need? What have I got? How can I serve my, my, my brothers, my, my brothers and sisters? How can I serve my family with the stuff that I have? Because I understand now that this is no longer mine. Because actually, you know, when we come to Christ, everything is surrendered to him. There is nothing left that should not be surrendered to his service. Now, I don't say that as like any sort of pressure, but I think this is the reality. This is what I think this group of people understood was that everything was his. And so they, they, they uh, uh, so where am I? Every day they devote themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Some things that I just wanted to draw a highlight that I, I think are going to be really crucial um, it, as we think about the connect groups that John and I think it's going to pick up on in a minute, it's so what it looks like for us. Are those, are those four things that we find in Acts chapter 2. Um, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the, actually the first thing is they devote themselves. So none of this, um, none of this would have been possible without a devotion to Jesus and his ways and her understanding actually just of what he'd done. Um, I... I I think the Jesus life calls for wholehearted devotion. I think the, the pattern of being a disciple of Jesus calls for us to give our full devotion to him. Now, let me just qualify that because I think the more that we walk with Jesus and the more that we align our lives with him, the more, the more he has of our life. I think there's process. I think there's journey. I think there's a, God does some amazing work in us. I think he transforms us. I think as we walk with him, he begins to reveal the things that have a great hold over our life and maybe they should have. And he gently works with us and walks with us and transforms us so that actually we can be the kind of people he's always designed us to be. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, chosen and set apart for his purposes. This, 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 this is what he's up to. And so that act of devotion was that they gave themselves to God, to one another and to the mission. I think we always see these three things working out in the life of the disciples, devoted to God, devoted to one another, and devoted to the mission. And so the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now this is really important because actually the, at, this, at this time of the story, they didn't have um, the letters, they didn't have the gospels, they didn't have any of the accounts, but what they did have is that the apostles had been with Jesus. So they'd, they'd sat under the teaching of Jesus, so they'd heard his, his ways. They'd not just heard what he'd said, but they'd seen how he'd lived his life. And so when they about the, sat under the apostles' teaching, what the apostles do, they're passing on the things that they'd heard Jesus speak and, and live to, the, to these new believers. Now, one of the other important things about teaching in this era was that it wasn't necessarily just somebody at the front talking and giving a lot of information. Because we can do that, can't we? Well, some of us can. And we like it. But actually, the role of a teacher was that actually other people would be taught and trained and how to, to learn and understand. And so 
Um, it says there that they gathered in the temple where they would have had some of the scriptures read. Um, um, but they, they gathered in homes. And the homes is a really important place because the place where actually um, life was done. Because the washing up still needed to be done. The water needed to be collected. The bins needed to put out, be put out. Um, you know, all the stuff of ordinary life. And uh, John mentioned um, one of the things that was really, uh, I, I missed it, but he, he mentioned, he'd, see, he'd, saw, he'd seen um, a father and a son walking towards the Western Wall and, um, and at the Western Wall, uh, a couple of others at the Western Wall, and the father with the, the arm around the son, the son asking some questions, what is this, and the father explaining this interaction between generations and passing on and teaching that wasn't to the crowd or the masses, but was to the family, passing on the ways. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it talks about, the, and, and, and the verses following talk about passing on the story. And so when, we gathered, when they were gathering in homes, the teacher's role, gathering around the teaching, was that they would pass on the ways of Jesus. But you, the new disciples would be going, if, it, if I was there at that time, yeah, Ian, tell me, what is it, what, how do you pray? What does prayer look like? How do you, how do you formulate a pattern of, of prayer? How do you understand this verse? And there would be a dialogue and instruction and teaching. And I would invite them and say, come sit with me. Let me show you how to read these texts. And, and it would be done around the context of family. And so there's interaction and movement, there's imitation, and then as things go. So that the, the whole role of teaching wasn't just about somebody lecturing, but uh, demonstrating. Then to the fellowship. How many of us have been in churches where the, the pastor will say at the end of the service, now let's have a time of fellowship? No? Oh, you're missing out. Let's have a time of fellowship. Let's have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and let's share a biscuit and... Say hello to somebody if you really would like, and that's time of fellowship. <laughs> Let me just suggest to you that actually that wasn't really the picture of the New Testament idea of fellowship. This idea of the Greek word koinonia, it means like involvement and shared life. It means I know what's going on in your life, and you know what's going on in my life, and together we're going to pursue Jesus for the things that he's calling us into. It's this open life. So... Um, have you, I don't know whether you've ever heard, but some, some people in, in, in pastoral ministry say that ministry and leadership is lonely. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. Well, I think they're a bit daft. Because <laughs> the, the only reason it's lonely is because you make it lonely. And because maybe some people have been bitten by the sheep and it's put them off. But I don't think that's any way to live, actually. And so I think when we see this idea of fellowship, it's about opening up our lives and opening up our homes. Because do you know what? I think our homes are the best places and best resource for discipleship and mission. I don't think discipleship necessarily, well, little bits take place here. But discipleship takes place in, the in, in, those, in those family environments where you're passing on the stories. And so if we want to do discipleship well, we can't afford to live a life that's isolated. You know the English, you know, Englishman's home is his castle thing? Again, rubbish. 
Oh, boundaries and all that, I get that, we live in a different world and you know, we have to sometimes get in the car to go to somebody's home and it's a little bit of a surprise if you turn up and say, hi, I'm here. Um, you know, we don't like that because we like appointments. We have appointments for everything. But what would it look like actually if we lived in such a way that, was, it was that actually if you've got a need, you need a cup of sugar, you need a lawnmower, you need help because there's something just kicked off in your family, you need somebody to stand with you in prayer. What would it look like just to pick up the phone, tap on the door and say, look, can, you, can you help? Can we, can we journey this together? And we're in it because it's shared life rather than carrying something or waiting and expecting the pastors to have a word of knowledge that you've got an issue. because that's the reality is the way that sometimes we've set things up we expect people to know what's going on but if we never open up our lives how will anybody ever know what's going on and there are over I think there are over 100, uh, 100 one another's in scripture it's not the pastor do this or the leaders do this or the elders do this it's like one another open up life to one another because actually we need one another and then what does it say? The breaking of bread, um, this idea of meal, sharing food, sharing life, sharing fellowship around food. But it's also about recognition of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like, wouldn't it be amazing that actually in, the, in these times they would have, they would have broke, took some bread and took some juice and remembered, why, why are we together? Why are we doing this life? Oh, it's because of Jesus and he is alive. In the face of persecution, in the face of, of challenge, let's remember that Jesus conquered all and Jesus is going to return and that Jesus is Lord and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's why we do it because through communion we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus and he wins. He wins. And he has won, and we, under, we sit under his authority. And then the prayer. Yeah, so they would have had these set times of prayer, and they, you know, at this point in time, they carried on with a regular pattern. They were going to temple. They were praying at regular times. Uh, there came a point, actually, where they weren't able to go to temple around AD 70 because the, um, the, the Jews had introduced this uh, uh, a curse in the synagogues that would seek to get them to curse Jesus so they said at that point we're out of here we're done and so they no longer went to the temple now the really amazing thing is that the church continued to do really well in homes right up until the time of Constantine where he began to control and get buildings we all love a building pastors love a building project except this one and that one <laughs> because it's something that we can see but you know what, in between that time, the church did incredibly well. It wasn't without fault because the Apostle Paul had to speak some truth into some of those, those churches. He had to bring correction to that. That's why the apostolic ministry is really important because the, the apostles keep the church on the mission of God. The prophets speak the truth and the heart of God. The pastors are connected to the people of God. The evangelists are connected to the, to the story of God. And what have I missed out? Teachers connected to the truth of God. So the apostolic function is about keeping the church on mission, connected to the heart of God and the purposes of God. And so we need people who operate in that kind of realm to say, this is what we're about. But I think the church did incredibly well in those circumstances. And my hunch is 
that the church will do incredibly well in the days that lie ahead. Because you know when the church gets small and gets mobile and gets movement, it's an unstoppable force. An unstoppable force. There is no persecution, there is no government that could stop it. We see it in China, we see it in other nations that when, when persecution comes, they just cannot contain it because it's small and mobile. But do you know what? They're networked. It's not just this little group here, this little group here, this little group here, but they see themselves as something bigger. And so that isn't going to happen. Um, and that didn't happen without devotion to Jesus, devotion to one another, and devotion to the mission. And I think I've talked enough, John, so I'm going to hand over to you. If we try and control this, it'll become about what we can do. But I want to see some stuff that I could never do. In the 18th century in Central America, um, the European settlers were encountering the native uh, people of the land. And uh, they sat side by side. And over time, these European settlers started to find themselves living with the natives. However, none of the natives started living with the Europeans. It just didn't happen. Although the Europeans tried to convince them, tried to start teaching them English, draw them in, go on, come and live with us, we'll, we'll, we'll prove to you that we're the better people, come and live our way. They thought they were the superior people, but the natives just didn't want to live with them. Even when conflict started to rise and the Europeans were taken captive by the natives, they had plenty of opportunities to escape plenty of opportunities to be rescued. And when those opportunities came, they refused. They refused to go. Why? Because the Europeans saw something in the natives and in their community that they craved and longed for and found. That their own people didn't have. Because their own people were so individualistic, so about themselves. And it didn't give them what they needed. Yet they saw something in the community of these native people where they supported each other, encouraged each other, built each other up, lived for each other, lived with each other. And it stirred them. And they wanted in on it. They wanted to be part of it. And nothing could convince them otherwise. And so they became part of it. I'm, I'm not against the way we do church, but I wonder if we've lost what church is all about. That our, our, our stream in the church, I'm going to say something controversial, so please email the elders if you don't like what I say. <laughs> I don't, I'm not very good at email. But the, the church... Uh, our church, our stream of the church can become quite critical of traditional church. All the smells and bells and all the stuff they do and it's religion and it's religion, we don't like religion. We like relationship, not religion and, and, and we get all like that. But I just wonder if there's that much difference. That we all gather on a special day to hear a special person preach a special message. And then we go away back to our lives. 
I think we've all kind of fallen into a trap of doing church rather than being the church. And I'm willing to risk it. I'm willing to say, how about we try something where I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm inviting us to try something and see what it could be without really knowing what we're doing. Saying, we love these moments when we gather. We love them. But what happens if they're a celebration of what God is doing when we've been together doing life? When we've been with each other, when one person's in need, another person knows and that need is met. Because I've got to be honest, I've got a capacity. And I'm beginning more and more as I go deeper with God. I sense God has called me to go deeper, that this church will only go deeper if I go deeper. And I've been going deeper with God. And I've helped him say, John, you've got a capacity. I've put a limit on your life. Because I'm not asking you to be everything to everybody because Jesus is. And I think there's some gifts in our church that when I stand before Jesus, I want to be able to say, yeah, they were a teacher. They were a prophet. They were an evangelist. But if we continue doing church the way it's always been done, I will never know whether you're a teacher, whether you're a prophet, whether you're an evangelist. Because we've not given you the opportunity to, to work into those gifts. Acts 2, as Ian has just unpacked, that community gave them an identity and they stood out. John 13, 35 is a verse that has been a verse for me as we've built this church, that the world will know we're his disciples by how? The way we love each other. By how we love each other. It means we need to stand out as a community. We need to show the world the love we have for each other. Where we commit. Jesus gave everything for each one of us. The identity of the community started to shape the community. You know, if you start working for a company, it's not long before you become like that, that, that organization, that, that uh, company. People that work for Apple, they have Apple evangelists. Did you know this? Apple has evangelists. They use that language. And the, you can walk around and you're like, yeah, you own an Apple phone, don't you? You can kind of pick them out. Because it's not long before you start to live the values of the company that you work for. If you work in a really unhealthy place where there's, uh, it's corporate, and nothing wrong with the corporate, that's the wrong word, but where it's backbiting and it's, it's uh, no pain, no gain, where it's you flog yourself until you get to where you need, you've got to get that big office. If that's the culture that you work in, it's not long before that starts to become who you are. If we try and live the way the world does, is it any wonder that we start to look the way the world looks? We're called to be different. We're called to stand out. We're called to live the way of Jesus. That's why for the rest of this year, we're going to do a series uh, on uh, that we're, we're, that's going to have different titles, but we're going back to look at just how Jesus lived his life. The way of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the, what's the other one? The works of Jesus and the wounds of Jesus. Just how Jesus has lived his life. And what can we learn from that about how we live our life? Gave them an identity, but it also gave them a purpose. Do you want to know your purpose? Just me then. A 2007 global survey, this was of the world. I'm drawing to a close with this, uh, hopefully. Um, 2007 global survey 
um, that was done across the nations, asking people whether they felt they were living meaningful lives. Shout out, where, where do you think is the country where people feel they're living the most meaningful lives? Just shout out some countries that you think, maybe your own country if you're from another nation, but just shout out some nations that you think the people of that nation live the most meaningful lives. If you know the answer, don't shout it out. Africa is a continent, but we'll go with it. If you want to na- name a country in Africa, South Africa. Okay. Any advance? Norway. Norway. Nice. Sorry? China. New Zealand. Who? New Zealand as well. Interesting. Built up, developed nations. Do you know the country that revealed those that had the most meaningful lives? Liberia. Nation in conflict at the time. Not a developed, wealthy nation. And it wasn't because life was easier and sweeter for those that live in Liberia. It was actually because it was tougher. But in the turmoil of their lives, they were compelled to make fierce commitments to each other that went beyond the the pain they were experiencing. And actually in and through that pain, They found a meaning. Because you see, the way the world tells us to love is to take. That's the definition of the world's version of love. Get what you can. Be loved. Do you know the biblical definition of love? It's giving. And I think we're missing something when we don't live the way that Jesus did when he said, love one another as I have loved you. Be for each other. Because there's something in that. There's something of a key there about a meaningful life as we give. Jesus gave his all. And so I'm really excited about our connect groups because our connect groups, I've got to tell you, I don't know where they're going to end. I've got a little dream in my head. Can I share it with you? You've turned out. Let me just share it with you. I wasn't going to share this, but I've got two minutes, and then we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing a song, and then you can go home for your lunch because I'm going out for a carvery because I'm hungry. Is that all right? <laughs> But I've got this little dream that we'll start having people meeting in homes and actually we'll start inviting people into those spaces, like those Europeans that got drawn into the natives' way of living. And that our houses will become too small to contain the people that we've invited in. And so we're going to have to say, look, uh, we've, been, we've been doing this and we've been journeying alongside this other couple and showing them how we've done it and what we've learned. And how, how about you just go and do it and start, take, take 10 of these people and just start another one over here. And then suddenly we start seeing in all the places, I, I said to someone the other day, I think it was you, Marie, didn't it? my dream is that no one in our church would live further than 10 minutes away from one of our groups. And there's suddenly one area, maybe Ulster, where we're starting one in a couple of weeks, they'll end up with like three or four little groups meeting in Ulster because we haven't got houses big enough. And then the natural thing is then to say, hey, we, we're all part of the same, Let, let's just meet together and celebrate. And suddenly a church has a meaning and a purpose and then those that are gathering say, hey, we're, part of, we're over this. So let's all meet together and have a massive party. That, that's the kind of dream I've got. And, and I mean, if you don't want to be part of it, that's no problem to me. But if you want to be, I just wonder what God could do. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This one throws a spanner in the works. Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. See, I think the first two are the why. The third one is the how. And we've done really good at the church of doing the first two. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's go find the lost. Let's save them. Came not to be served, but to... Not, 
not to be served, but to serve, get it the right way around. I think we're doing well with those, but I think we've lost the how. And I think there's something when we just gather to eat and to celebrate all that God is. It's this table. Our faith is built around a table. And so our church is going to be built around a table. A table where we come together and we celebrate who Jesus is. And others begin to see the significance of who Jesus is. Musicians, can you come forward and just start to noodle? Maybe something in a nice minor key just to welcome the Holy Spirit. Oh, a major key for Jesus. I, I, I don't know what this looks like fully. And I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm speaking and I'm saying, God, I'm not seeking to control this because if I was, I wouldn't be sharing what I'm sharing because I don't know. I don't know. And that's not a very uh, good way of leading a church. I appreciate that. And hey, that's fine. I can live with that. But we just sense God is calling us to step into something by faith. Can we just stand together? We're going to finish. We're going to come and take communion. I'm excited by what our connect groups could be as we prioritize those moments. And I'm asking, would you commit to that space? Would you prioritize those moments to gather around a table? And we're going to utilize technology where maybe get you in groups where we can spur each other on each day with what we sense God is saying. And technology is a great thing. I just think there's going to be a day where maybe you're struggling to even understand what God is saying and doing. And somebody else will send a WhatsApp message to your group and it'll just, it'll be what you need for that day. And we're building each other up. Where we gather together and it's, I'm struggling with this. And your mate says, can I pray for you? Rather than just studying prayer, how about we get about praying for each other? God will teach us. I'm not against us being taught. That's what we're going to do as we go through this. The table is where the higher brought low. The table is where the lower lifted up. The table is where the stranger becomes a neighbor and the neighbor becomes a friend and the friend becomes the family. It's the table of reconciliation. It's the table of restoration. It's the table of relationship. It's who we are as a church. And so I want to invite you this morning to a table. A table that reminds us just who Jesus is. His way that brings us into fellowship with him and each other. Place where we're accepted, loved. That's what these groups are going to be. That's what this table is about.